Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. In this lesson, if we will be looking at the church of Laodicea. Again, the seventh church on this journey that we began as John was instructed to send these letters to the seven churches. We began at Ephesus and we made our way all the way around, and we are now at our final destination in these seven churches, which is Laodicea. Let me remind you, as I have in every lesson thus far, when we look at these churches, don't forget, these are literal churches. In 96 AD, when this was written, these were literal bodies of believers in these particular cities. It's important that we understand that, but it's also important, as I always remind you, that there is also, along with that, some symbolic reference to the churches of today. What I mean by that is everything that we see going on in those churches in Asia Minor could potentially be going on in churches today. The good, the bad, and the indifferent could all be occurring, and so we need to pay close attention to those things. We need to, as, as individuals in the church, examine our lives closely. Collectively, as a church, we need to examine our church closely, making sure that we're not falling into any of these violations that we have seen and making sure that we are, as we saw last week in Philadelphia, a church that remains faithful no matter what. So as we look at Laodicea today, we're going to see a church that's often called the lukewarm church. And I want you to understand this before we ever get into the lesson tonight. Lukewarm was only the beginning of their problems. Lukewarm is only the beginning of their problems. Many times people say, well, this was the lukewarm church, and they just leave it at, at lukewarm. <clears throat> We're going to see that lukewarm is what started the snowball effect that led to what really was going on in Laodicea. What was really going on in Laodicea was that this church had become so self-sufficient, so self-righteous, so self-absorbed that they no longer had a need for Christ. That's why this message is going to be titled, The Church That Shut Jesus Out. The church that shut Jesus out, and they had shut Jesus out in such a way and had found their sufficiency in so many other things that it even went undetected. And that's pretty bad when a church doesn't have the presence of Jesus and doesn't even know it. We're going to see that they thought everything was okay. They thought that everything was going on as usual, but you've been pushed outside. Out of the presence, out of fellowship, out of intimacy. And he's calling them to faith and repentance. He is on the outside. They are on the inside, and he's calling them to faith and repentance. If we see that clearly, we will understand this. This is an unbelieving, in parentheses, church. This is a church that at one time was probably a fruitful church. We're going to look at the history of it. We're going to see that it had connection to Paul as many of these 
churches of Asia Minor had some type of connection to Paul, though it was probably an indirect connection. It was connected to someone who was connected to Paul, probably a disciple of Paul, a companion of Paul. This church had apostatized from the faith. Christ is on the outside, looking in. We're going to see the communication. We're going to see the location. We get to the section of commendation. There's none. Not one good thing. He had nothing good to say about Laodicea. In fact, everything that he says about Laodicea is negative. It calls for repentance, trust, and faith. We look at their violations. We're going to look at that in detail. There were many, far more than just being lukewarm or indifferent. We're going to see the exhortation as he's going to give them some encouragement. Thankfully, he's gracious. We're going to see retribution, what he says is going to happen if you don't heed what I'm saying. And then we'll look at the application. How does this apply to the church of 2022 here in New Caney, Texas? So let's read it together in its entirety, and then we will examine each section of this text. Verse 14 says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I assure you of this, if there was anyone left in this church to hear his voice, they were his true sheep. He's urging them, repent. We see this. At this point in time, we have to assume that there are no members of this church who truly have faith in Christ. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Where is he? He's on the outside. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's break this down and let's look at it, because as we're going to see, oftentimes we have been taught to incorrectly interpret many of these passages, many of these verses, much of this text. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at it like we should, how it's written, who it's written to. What is this all about? Again, I want to remind you as we look at the communication, this is the Lord himself clearly communicating as he's done in all of the six previous letters, clearly communicating a message to this particular church by their particular Messenger, that angel, as we saw, or messenger is that pastor, that lead elder of the church of Laodicea. And again, why? Why is it important? We've learned this, I hope, as goes 
the leader, so goes the church. So the leader would read this first as he received it. Then he would pass it on to the congregation so that they could hear what the Lord himself was saying to his church. So it is the responsibility of every pastor to tell the congregation not what they think, not all the cool things they've done in life, not all the fancy illustrations that they can come up with. It is that pastor's responsibility to tell them what the Lord has said. That's why we preach the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. And that was what was going on here. They were receiving a warning because this church at Laodicea was in the condition that it was in, more than likely, the pastor was or was in danger of being in the same condition, or perhaps he was in the condition first. It trickled down to the people either way. The individual members, along with the leadership, bore the responsibility of what the Lord was about to tell them. It was the Lord himself telling this, and he defines himself for us. In verse 14, as we read it together, he says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, to the messenger, the lead pastor, the lead elder there at Laodicea, write a message that he can read to this congregation. These are the words of the amen. The amen, that's how Christ describes himself first. We've seen this in every letter. He takes a description of himself and he puts it in the greeting. He refers to himself as the amen. What in the world does this mean? The amen. Amen, we know this means so be it. He's saying, I am the so be it. This means that Christ is the final word. What he says goes. What he says he means and what he means he says. Just as when the Lord said, let there be light, what was the direct result? Light. He would say, the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. Amen. He let it be. He is the amen when Christ speaks against the church as he's going to in this letter. When he speaks to you as individuals of the church as he does in your life through the Holy Spirit when he convicts you and he leads you to the word to see things that your life is not squaring up with. He means what he says and he says what he means. He refers to himself as the amen. So be it. Christ is saying this, therefore it is. Therefore, what Christ says is. He's letting them know this so that all the arguments that they would have would be taken away. They, they could potentially say, but that's not how we feel at all. The amen says, this is how you are. So that's how you are. And it doesn't matter what you feel. We're going to see that this church felt that everything was okay. They're even going to say that. And the amen is saying, everything is not okay. What I say is right. I am the one that when I speak, I am the amen. It is, so be it when I speak. I am king of kings and lord of lords. He refers to himself as the, the amen. And then he goes on and he says, the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been 
Yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the, watch this, here it is again, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. He's saying that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. The amen has spoken. And why are they yes and amen in Christ? Because he is the faithful and true witness. He speaks the very truth. And when he speaks the very truth from his mouth, mouth, these are the blessed promises of God. And God will faithfully keep every single promise that he has made in Christ Jesus. They are yes and amen in Christ. This title, Faithful and True Witness, speaks of everything contrary to what we are going to see the Laodicean church is. They are neither faithful nor true. He is the exact opposite of them. He's making that very clear. He's not just throwing out titles at random. He's saying these things on purpose. In fact, out of all seven of the letters, I would say that this one is the most direct and clear to the audience who is receiving it by the things that he is going to use in getting the message across. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness, unlike you. You're neither faithful to me, nor are you a true witness, nor are you true in anything that you do or say. I'm contrary to you. It also points to the fact that what he says is always accurate. Aren't you thankful that we have the Word of God that is always accurate? 100% fail-proof 100% of the time. Inerrant and inspired by God Himself who cannot make a mistake. He's saying, I'm accurate in what I say. In fact, he's letting them know that his analysis as the faithful and true witness of them there at Laodicea is 100% accurate and correct. Why is he doing this? To show them that they have no substantive argument or rebuke or rebuttal. They can't rebuttal or rebuke the Lord. They can't say that he's wrong. He is faithful and true. They are everything opposite of that. And he goes on, in case he was going to be challenged a little further, he says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. He's letting them know, I am sovereign over all creation and creator of all. Some of your translations may say the beginning of God's creation. Either way, it is Christ, as we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, who is sovereign over all. Watch what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He's letting them know that he is the ruler of all things, that he is sovereign over all. This title of preeminence that Christ gives to himself belongs to him and him alone. He is the head of this body, just as he was the head 
of the church in Philadelphia and the head of the church in Sardis and the head of the church in Thyatira and the church in Pergamum and the church in Smyrna and the church in Ephesus. He is the head of the church in Laodicea. Even though we're going to see that they had no need for him, he's going to let them know, I am still the one who is in sovereign control. He's the ruler of God's creation. What titles he chose for himself, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. We see the communication coming to the church at Laodicea from Christ himself, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the one who never is inaccurate in anything that he says, and the ruler, the sovereign ruler over all things. He's establishing this so that they know, oh, when I speak to you, I'm speaking with authority. Pay attention to what I'm saying. So let's look at the location. Let's look at Laodicea. I'm sure many of you have never visited Laodicea before. Laodicea, in verse 14, we see is this church that we are dealing with. And this is a city that was named after a woman. And her name was Laodice, or more accurately, Laodiki. We'll call her Laodice. She was the wife of Antiochus. We have talked about him before, Antiochus II, who was the Seleucid king during what we know as the Hellenistic period between Alexander the Great, the beginning of the Roman Empire. Um, it was founded by Antiochus, named after his wife, and it was founded somewhere around the middle of the 3rd century B.C., uh, we know this because we can date it to the fact that they were at some point in time divorced. And so we can kind of get an accurate measurement because I'm almost certain that he wouldn't have named the city after her after his divorce. So he named the city after his wife, Laodice. We know it as Laodicea. It's 100 miles east of Ephesus, about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia. So if we started Ephesus... We can just shoot straight over, and we'll see Laodicea. Or we can take the loop around as we did Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, so on and so forth as we come to Laodicea. It was located on a major trade route running from Ephesus to Syria, a very important city of its day, a very important center of trade. In looking and researching how this church started, Many people believe that this church was started by a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was a companion of Paul, and he was the founding pastor of the church at Colossae, which we know Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians. Uh, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, we see this. Epaphras, verse 12 of Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea, interesting, mentioned there, and Hierapolis. So we see this person, Epaphras, mentioned there in the Colossian letter. Um, some others believe um, that Archippus, these Bible names, fun to say. Archippus 
was actually the son of Philemon. We see that in Philemon chapter 2. Many believe that though Epaphras founded the church, that the son of Philemon, Archippus, was actually the pastor at the time that this letter would have been handed to this church. We don't know if that is accurate. We can only speculate. But he was mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And so we know that Archippus, as did Epaphras, have connection with not only the church at Colossae, but also the church at Laodicea. Either way, we know this, that there was a strong Pauline influence. What I mean by that is that the Apostle Paul played some influence into the church at Laodicea, just as he did to the church at Colossae. Paul, just as he did to the churches that we've seen in Asia Minor. Though Paul may have never physically stood in Laodicea, there were those who had been discipled by Paul and taught by Paul who would have and even potentially led these churches. To many of you, you say, well, that doesn't really matter to me, and that's okay. If it matters to you, it matters to you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It matters to me. I want to see as much of this picture as I can as it unfolds. But this town was located on a plain overlooking the Lycus River, and it became very important and very influential in a city of much wealth. We're going to see that even the Lord testifies to that because the people were thinking that because we have all of this wealth, we don't really need anything else. Sounds a little like another country that I know. Um, but they were so wealthy that when a massive earthquake destroyed the region in 60 A.D., the, the Laodiceans, Laodiceans, excuse me, they refused any help from Rome. So Rome had all the money in the world, but they had so much money that when the earthquake destroyed the city in 60 AD, they said, no thanks, Rome. We don't want any assistance from you. We got this. We can take care of it. They financed their own rebuilding within this small city. That's how wealthy this city was. It was a center of trade, as I've already mentioned. It was known for its black wool. That's going to come into play in this in just a moment. It's known for its black sheep that produced a very dark black wool. And, of course, black fabrics, which would have been uncommon. Black fabrics were then produced from the wool. And so many people sought after the wool and the fabric that came from Laodicea. You say, why does black wool, why is it even important to this Discussion. Why is it important to this teaching? Because Jesus is going to talk about white garments in just a moment. They were familiar with black garments. All of this Christ will use to get their attention. They were a center of, a center of banking, a city that was surrounded around and fixed upon their fascination with worldly wealth. Um, the great wealth of their citizens, because they had such a great business and trade, and they were at the middle of a trade route, um, everyone there flourished. It was a very rich town, and of course, the banks got in on the deal, right? They held the money for the people. They loaned money where money was needed to be loaned. So it was a center of banking for the region. They had great wealth because their citizens had great wealth. But not only was it a center, a, a center of trade 
and banking is also a center of medicine. Here in Laodicea, uh, they produced a very important eye salve. Kind of interesting when we get to the end of this letter in a moment. But they produce a very important eye salve because back in the day, um, eye problems were, were very common. People didn't have sunglasses. People spent most of their time outdoors. And so people had issues with their eyes, and this eye salve that they produced would help them, uh, those who suffered from eye injury, um, even those who were suffering from Blindness or mild blindness due to prolonged sun exposure. The salve was used uh, to put in their eyes. Now, though they had a lot of influence from pagan gods and goddesses, it's not even mentioned in this letter. They had, if you could have, (laughs) even bigger problems than that. Their idols, as we're going to see, were not the false gods and goddesses of mythology. Their idols became themselves and their wealth and their own thought self-sufficiency. We're going to see their greatest idol was themselves. I want you to pay close attention to that. I want you to heed that warning. I want you to see the reality of that and how that could happen to any and every one of us at any moment in time in a country that has been so richly blessed. There was a drawback here in Laodicea. Seemingly the perfect place. Good industry. Wealthy. Center of trade. We had medicines. and We were big pharma of the day. Everybody wanted our medicines. Their salve went worldwide. Big drawback was this. They didn't have their own water supply. So what they had to do, they had to pipe water in from several miles away which by the time that it reached the inhabitants of Laodicea was neither cold nor hot. It was this lukewarm, tipid water. Also, it had an off taste. And the reason that it had an off taste is because the minerals that were in the water caused it to smell and taste awful. It was not like the valued hot springs of Hierapolis to the north. You look at a map, Hierapolis, directly north. They had hot springs there, and it was valued because people would go and they would take advantage of these hot springs, and these hot springs were thought to have some type of healing. You go south of Laodicea, you go to Colossae. They were known for their cold stream water. They were known for good-tasting, good-smelling water. When he talks to them in just a moment about being neither hot nor cold, oftentimes what we like to do, cold means you're not on fire for Jesus, and hot means you're fired up for Jesus, and we all need to get fired up for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Never was he saying that. What he's saying is this. The taste of you makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that's a little different, isn't it? That you are putrid to me. We're going to see that. And he's using and will use the fact that historically, their water supply was awful. So when he spoke to Laodicea about lukewarm, they understood it very clearly. They understood exactly what he meant. Because they had been to Colossae and drank the spring water that was cool and refreshing. They had been to Hierapolis 
where they had bathed in the hot springs and saw the value of that. And here they were, piping water in that had no value. It was horrible to smell, even worse to taste. So all these things that just seem like accidents in this letter all of a sudden have such great, deep meaning. We look at the commendation to this church. If you can find it, let me know. But there is none. No commendation. None at all. Not one good thing to say about Laodicea. Nothing. He didn't even give them an attaboy for trying. He lets them know you're putrid. I want to vomit you up. That's what he means. I know we've cleaned it up in our translations. I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to literally puke you out. He was not commending them for nothing. Because there was nothing to commend them for. Nothing at all. So we move to the violation part of this letter, verse 15. Verse 15 begins this section on the violations. He says this, I know your deeds. Interesting that he always reminds them of that. He knows your deeds. I say this to each of you today. I say this to myself. He knows our deeds. He knows what reality is. He knows what it really is, not what we're trying to fool ourselves into thinking that reality is. He knows the truth. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. Remember, he had a reason for this, and I just told you what that reason was. I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The first violation is that, lukewarm. What is the Lord even saying here? What does lukewarm even mean? What is the spiritual symbolism of taking what is known to them, the water of their day, versus the water of their nearby towns? What would he be trying to tell them? Lukewarm represents this. You write this down. They were indifferent toward Christ. They were neutral toward Christ. The worst thing that you can be is indifferent toward Christ. The worst thing that you can be is neutral. Because if you are, you're ineffective. They were non-impactful. They were not making an impact for Christ at all. Remember the other churches, some of them were suffering, and in their suffering, they were making an impact for Christ, and he would commend them for it. This church is not suffering anything. In fact, they think that everything's okay. We have worldly wealth, and so because we have worldly wealth, everything is good. Please do not let that be your standard to measure if everything is good in your spiritual life. He calls them lukewarm because they were indifferent. He uses that illustration of the water to say to them, you, like your water supply, are disgusting. Oh, what a comment from the Lord. I know in our sissified, manby-pamby, so-called American Christianity today, we don't like to think that the Lord would ever say anything like that. That is exactly what he is saying to them. You disgust me because you're indifferent toward me. You disgust me because you are indifferent toward me. You are neutral. Not only were they indifferent, lukewarm, it goes on if we continue to read there. It says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Remember that. Poor, blind, and naked. Because he's going to offer them healing for all three of those if they will trust in Christ. But he says, right now in your current condition, you think everything is okay. You say, I'm rich and I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. They were self-sufficient. Oh, how dangerous is that to become self-sufficient, to spend your whole life chasing riches, to spend your whole life gathering unto yourself worldly treasures, thinking that that's going to bring you some type of security. They were self-sufficient, content with worldly riches alone. They weren't serving Christ at all. It didn't even bother them. They were indifferent toward Christ. They were lukewarm. They were serving their own worldly riches, finding sufficiency in themselves. If that doesn't sound like the American church, I don't know what does. You remember the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as he gave a warning to the Israelites concerning a very similar scenario. I want you to pay attention to this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. Lord speaking to his people, he says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. He's saying this, the, the land I graciously gave you, that I took away from others for you to have, when you get into that city, to that land, he goes, when you... See, houses, verse 11, filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, watch what he says in verse 12, be careful. Oh, doesn't he know us? Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. When you get to the land flowing with milk and honey that you didn't earn, didn't deserve, didn't work to have, that I just gave you because I'm gracious. Be careful to not forget me. Don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know why he warned them of that? Because he knows our tendencies, doesn't he? He knows you more than you know you. And what he says about you is right. Why? He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He's letting them know that you are self-sufficient. You're placing all of your trust in worldly wealth. Not only were they self-sufficient and lukewarm, I told you lukewarm was just one of their problems. They were self-deceived. They were self-deceived. Look at the latter part of 17. He says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, and pitiful, and poor, and blind, and naked. They didn't even know what they really were. They didn't even know what they really were. They were self-deceived. They thought they were okay when they weren't. They thought they were one thing, but they were the opposite of what they thought that they were. He said, you say that you're rich, but I say that you're poor. You're poor. They thought they were Christians. But they were deceived. They had false assurance based on unbiblical logic. Sound familiar? False assurance based on unbiblical logic. 
Well, I'm saved because I think I'm saved. It doesn't matter what you think. What does the amen say? What does the word of he who is faithful and true witness about you? What does that say? Well, my grandma told me that I'm saved. No, I didn't ask you what your grandma said. What is he who is faithful and true? The amen. What does he say? And he's telling them what he says about them. They're self-deceived. Paul describes these types of people for us in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Don't believe me? Look at a boat ramp on Sunday or the parking lot of a golf course on Sunday. Having a form of godliness or an NFL stadium don't let me forget that one since it's football season. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. He says, have nothing to do with them. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. Why? Because they didn't truly know Christ. They had a form of godliness. They called themselves a church. But as we've already seen and as we're going to continue to see, Christ was outside of this fellowship. A, a church that, that Christ is outside of, watch this, is not a real church. They're self-deceived. They're thinking that there's something that they aren't. In this study, we've seen many of these churches facing persecution, suffering for their faith. Nothing indicates that here. Nothing. Here they are in the middle of Rome, where every other place that we have looked at has suffered for their faith because of Roman persecution or because of Jewish persecution. But yet we have no indication that Laodicea faced any kind of persecution at all. It's interesting since 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Many people ask the question, well, I don't understand why the American church doesn't face the persecution like the rest of the world. <laughs> In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, could be, will be. Maybe persecution at your workplace. It may be persecution in your home or your own family. You will be persecuted, I assure you of this, if you are in Christ and you are living and seeking to live a godly life. Why? Because the Bible said it and it's true. No mention of that of this church. This church was totally undevoted to Christ. So no one had to persecute them. There was nothing, nothing worth persecuting them for. This church had no need for Christ in their fellowship, in their own minds. This is what they thought, even though if you ask them, they would say, oh, no, that's not the case. We love Jesus. On Easter, we celebrate his resurrection, and on Christmas, we celebrate his birth. We talk about him sometimes. But they had no real need for Christ. I'm here to tell you tonight that a church who doesn't live by the song that says, I need thee, 
Oh, I need thee. Every hour, Lord, I need thee. The church that doesn't sing that song with a sincere heart has lost their way. They think that they have it all figured out and they don't need Christ. They are self-deceived. They're self-sufficient. They're lukewarm. A church without a need for Christ, write it down. A church without a need for Christ is not a church. It's not a church at all. This type of church will only provoke the jealousy of God. Did you know our God in the New Testament is the same God in the Old Testament who is still a jealous God? And He is. And he always will be. And He's rightfully so. So we see their violation. They were lukewarm, self-sufficient, self-deceived. Oh, and let's not forget self-righteous. Right? When you think that you're good enough by yourself and you don't need Christ, it's the epitome of self-righteousness. You've got it all together. You don't need Christ at all. Uh, this is like the Pharisees that we have seen in John's Gospel on Sunday morning who had no need for Christ. They thought that they had it all figured out. So look at their violation. Let's move into the next section here, which is our exhortation. What is he going to tell them to do now? Verse 18 Lord says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Why does he say this? Well, look at just before that in 17, he says, you say that you're rich and you're in need of nothing. You've acquired great wealth, but I say that you're pitiful. You're poor. They're not rich at all. They're blind and they're naked. And then he goes on, he says, and I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. What is he saying? He's saying you need to find your real value and real riches in Christ. In these verses, Christ is showing that he desires to show mercy to these individuals and to the whole of the Laodicean church who had pushed him out and shut the door in his face. He's actually going to encourage them. I can't believe it. It's amazing to see what he's going to do here. He should have already just spewed them out of his mouth. They were pushing him aside. But he says this. He says, find your real value, your real riches in me. Gold refined in fire. He's saying, find pure gold. Pure gold. When they would refine gold in the fire, they would bring it to the hottest of temperatures, removing any other foreign object from that gold, making it 100% pure. The Lord is saying, my gold, my riches, all that you need, they were, in fact, the rich, poor church. Unlike Smyrna, remember Smyrna, they were the poor, rich church. They thought they were poor. And Christ says, no, you're rich. You don't have anything, but you have all you need because you have me. He's saying this to Laodicea. Don't miss that. You need true riches, and you find true riches of true value in Christ and Christ alone. 
In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Peter says this, these have come so that your faith, he's talking about persecutions, suffering. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's talking about true riches that are found because of true faith in Christ. True riches are found because of true faith in Christ. Luke chapter 12, verse 21, the Lord talks about those who store up earthly riches instead of those who are rich toward God. He's talking to the Laodicean church and he's saying, you're storing up earthly riches, but you're not rich toward God. Purchase from me gold refined by fire. He's using a term that they can understand. He's having to speak to them in worldly terms. Why? Because they're worldly. They understand this. They understood this more than we can even understand it. Looking back, they were there. They knew that their faith rested in earthly riches. He said, don't put your faith in earthly riches. Put your faith in true treasure. I am that true treasure. Put your faith in me. Find your real value, your real, real riches in Christ. Laodicea had settled for earthly riches. The church had settled for, we, we, we've got enough money in our bank account. Everybody in our membership is doing well. We have some high society people who are attending our fellowship, officials in the city, important people, politicians, governors, mayors. We even pander to them with our nonsense that we call preaching so that they'll keep coming, so that they'll keep giving, so that they'll keep getting the people we want them to get in office when we want them in office. They ought to see had settled for earthly riches. Why? Because they were working with earthly resources. They needed to find true riches, and true riches are only found in Christ. American church, are you listening? Are you listening? Pay attention to this. Don't let this one slip by and be self-deceived and say, it can't be talking about a problem we would ever have. We're living it. Pay attention. He's encouraging to find your real value and riches in Christ. Secondly, he goes on and he says this. He says, I, I, I encourage you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. He's talking about real riches, heavenly riches. And then he says white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Remember, they're poor, they're naked, and they're blind. Well, he's covering their poverty. He's saying, buy real riches from me, true faith in me, me and me alone as your sufficiency. Find real riches. And then he says, and find real clothing, clothing that is righteous so that it can cover your shameful nakedness. You know the only thing that covers our shameful nakedness as sinners? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he clothed us in through his glorious sacrifice as that righteousness is imputed to us. He's encouraging them, find righteousness in Christ. Stop trying to find righteousness in you. Stop trying to find righteousness in what you have or what you have to offer or what you can do or how talented you think you are. Find righteousness in Christ. White clothes symbolize the righteousness that is imputed by Christ to those who truly have faith in him. Symbolizes that imputed righteousness, but it also symbolizes that imparted righteousness, the good deeds that he does through those 
who are truly His that bring Him glory. This is contrary to the darkness of our sin. This is contrary to the darkness of our human works. Watch the parallel that he's making here. Darkness is sin. It is that black wool that Laodicea was so known for. These white garments are the righteousness of Jesus Christ that these who turned by faith to Christ would be clothed in. He's encouraging them. Don't settle for those clothes of darkness. Don't settle for that dark, tainted fabric of sin when you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What a picture he is painting here for this church. Those clothed in white in the New Testament, every time that you see this, are either angels or they are the redeemed who've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Laodicea not yet clothed in righteousness. They were clothed in their shame and in their sin, just as all who are outside of Christ are clothed. Laodicea did not realize their nakedness and their shame. They needed to be clothed in Christ. So he goes on and he says this as we continue. He says, So that you, he says, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And then he says, And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now, there's nothing in here that indicates that every person there in Laodicea was blind because that was not the fact. He's not talking about physical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight, and he's using an illustration that they will understand. Why? Oh, when I was telling you all the boring history stuff that everybody wants me to just rush through so we can get to the good stuff, this is why. They were known for ISAV that they would have sold all over the world. When he talked about blindness, he knew they would perk up. We know about blindness. What are you going to tell us about blindness? I'm not talking about the blindness like you understand blindness. I'm talking to you about the spiritual blindness that you are suffering from. He was encouraging to find real value in the riches of Christ, gold that was refined in the fire of Christ, find righteousness in Christ and in Christ alone. Because that's the only place that you're going to find true righteousness. And then he says, and find healing for your spiritual blindness in Christ. He's not talking to a group of backslidden believers. He's talking to a group of people who call themselves a church and they're not believers at all. Everything that the Lord says indicates this. Stop thinking that this is a bunch of backslidden people. These people are lost. They have never had Christ. They would already have riches from Christ. They would already be clothed in righteousness. They would already be healed of their spiritual blindness. He would not be having to tell them these things again. They were lost. He's saying find real healing for your spiritual blindness, and you find that in Christ and in Christ alone. You're blind. The only salve that's going to heal your spiritual blindness is Christ. He's the only one who can open your eyes to see the truth, that you are naked, You are poor, you are blind, and you are wretched, just as he said. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this in verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's talking about Satan. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see this light until he allows them to see it, until he applies the salve that will heal their spiritual blindness, that salve that came through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, again, speaking of spiritual blindness, verse 14 tells us that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who don't have Christ don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, I assure you of this, you are spiritually blind. You can't see the things of God. You can't understand the things of God. They ought to see that needed to be healed of their spiritual blindness, just as I did one day when I was spiritually blind, when I was indifferent toward Christ. And he healed my spiritual blindness. He's offering them this in their current condition. You know what their current condition is? Christ is on the outside. They're on the inside, not needing him. Verse 20 and 21. Very important part of this as we look at this exhortation. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a call to faith and repentance from Christ. This is contrary to the often poor interpretation of this text. We have all heard it. Christ is outside the door of your heart, and he's knocking on your heart's door. Just let him in, and he'll save you. There's no mention of a heart's door here. He's knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea. He's saying, I'm on the outside. You you have shut me out. And he is mercifully sharing with them the gospel one more time. Did you know this? When they read this, the messenger who had this in his hand, whoever he was, when he read this to them, he read to them a gospel plea from Christ himself. And that plea is faith and repentance, to turn from your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness and your sinful, wicked deeds and turn to Christ and Christ alone. This is Christ knocking on the door of the Laodicean church. He's saying this. Read it with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone, he's asking for what? If anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. I told you it starts with the individuals that make up the whole. Christ is pleading for an individual. Will one of you hear what I've said to the church at Laodicea? Will one of you see that you really are in the condition that I say that you're in, not the condition that you think that you're in? Will you see that you're in the condition that I say that you're in? I would to God that the American church would see the condition that Christ says that they're in. That the word of God says that they're in. The Laodicean church there with Christ on the outside. Them on the inside. Not realizing that they have a need for Christ at all, but Christ still being merciful and sending the gospel to them so that he could fellowship with them so that they could fellowship with him. 
He was desiring just one, if any of you. Just one true believer at Laodicea. So that he could fellowship with them again. So that he wouldn't be on the outside shut out from a bunch of lukewarm, indifferent, self-sufficient, self-deceived, self-righteous, self-fulfilled people. He was desiring just one true believer in this apostate church. Did you know this? If one true believer arose in the church at Laodicea, it would no longer be an apostate church. It would be a church that fellowshiped with Christ, even if it was but just one. He says, I stand at the door of just one. I'll sup with him. What does that mean? I'll, I'll eat with him. It's a term of intimate fellowship. Right? If we really want to get to know someone, we really want to get to know about their life, their passions, what do we do? Hey, let's go out and get a bite to eat. I want to get to know you a little more, right? Those of you who were married, well, probably one of the first things you did is you took your wife out to eat or your potential wife out to eat at the time. Right? You learned a lot of things, right? If she was like a slob when she ate, it was like last date. You began to get to know her by eating with her, talking to someone over dinner. He's talking about that kind of fellowship. I want you to know me. I want to know you. I want to be welcomed into your fellowship. He's showing them their need for an intimate relationship with Christ. There were so many churches here go through the motions and have no intimate relationship with Christ. They are so indifferent to Christ that they don't even realize it. Relying upon themselves, relying upon their own talents and their own abilities instead of humbly relying upon Christ for everything. Storing up worldly riches instead of treasures in heaven. And God's word is very clear. It shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so. What is the retribution here that he says will happen if they don't listen? Go back to verse 16, the second part. He says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Thankfully, he didn't say, I've already spit you out of my mouth. He didn't say, I'm already done with you. I've already given you over. Because he never would have gotten to the gospel plea and what we just saw there as he was encouraging them into faith and repentance. He says, I'm about to. What does that mean? If you don't listen to what I'm telling you right now, if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is the, the only treasure that came down from heaven to rescue sinful man, in fact, he is the only riches that you need, if you don't recognize that and you continue to be indifferent toward me because of that. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. If you don't see that the only way to righteousness is through my righteousness, right? isn't that what Romans told us, that God has provided us in Christ, a righteousness that comes directly from God and it's not of works? He's saying to them, see me as true righteousness or be vomited out. Be spit out of my mouth. He's saying to them, be healed of your spiritual blindness through me. Let me open your eyes to the truth. Well, how can he open their eyes to the truth? Because he is that faithful and true 
witness. Let me tell you who you really are so that you can see your need for me. Aren't you thankful that one day Christ told you who you really were? And it wasn't very pretty if you were honest. And he told you who you were and he showed you who you were so that you could find riches in him because you had nothing in you. Remember that day? That's the day that you were saved if you were truly saved. Oh, but the American church, we like to sell it as a free ticket to heaven instead of, right, instead of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ that ultimately results in eternal life in heaven. The retribution is this. He said, I'm going to spit you out. I'm disgusted with you. I'm disgusted with your indifference toward me just as you are disgusted with that awful water that you have to drink every day in Laodicea. He was saying to this so-called church, you leave a bad taste in my mouth. That's how we would say it today. You really leave a bad taste in my mouth, and I will not continue to tolerate your attitude toward me. If you don't repent, and by faith trust in me, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. See, so, well, who does God think that he is to say that he's done with you? He, he's done when he says he's done. I promise you that. He is the amen. He makes that clear. When he says, I'm done, Romans chapter 1, when he says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, guess what? They were given over to their sin. He was done. Why? Because the amen spoke. So let it be. It is what he says that it is. So what is the application to the American church in 2022 in regard to the church at Laodicea in 96 A.D., where do we start? And how long do we have? Where do we start and how long do we have? Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this look familiar? Perhaps it looks familiar in your life. Perhaps it looks familiar in churches you've been affiliated with, so-called churches. Can we learn anything from this? You bet we can. Let's learn it as we close. As we take this all into consideration, remember the literal church that we've just looked at literally? Let's look at what it means to us symbolically right now in this church age. Let's, hear, let's heed the warning. Let's hear the plea of the Lord. If you're here and you're not a believer, trust in Christ today. But we must never have an attitude of indifference toward Christ. Never. Christ should be our number one passion. Christ, His kingdom, and His glory. It should be our passion. Is that the passion of the American church? You know what I have found recently? The passion of the American church is get more people so we can have more money, so we can get more things, so we can be known as the cool church. Have a carousel for our kids in the lobby. Go-kart track out back. Smoke machine. Concert. We must never have an attitude that Christ doesn't matter. You know the most important thing to this church? Christ. That's it. It's not Kirk Hall. It's not the elders of this church. It's not the staff of this church. Christ. Christ and Christ alone. He is the head of the body which he died for. Not anyone or anything else. We must never have an attitude of indifference toward Christ. 
We can never allow his church to be about us. Did you get that? I've been in churches, they thought it was about them. I don't like that color carpet. I don't like that song you sang. I remember one time I sang a song and a lady said, I don't like that song that you sing." I said, good, because I wasn't singing it to you. I was singing it to Christ. He loved it. You know why he loved it? Not because it was on pitch. Not because I played every note perfectly. He loved it because I was singing about how he redeemed an awful, wretched person like me. He was honored by it because I knew the heart to which I had sung it. It was to him. We can never allow his church to be about us. Self-righteousness, self-service. What can the church do for me? Did you know that? That's how people shop for churches in America. I went into this church, and my wife and I, and we asked, what can this church do for our family? Stop. What can you do for Christ? What can you do for Christ? Maybe God is moving you to that church because he needs you there for his body. Stop being so self-absorbed. What does this mean to us? We can never allow church to become about us. But we go to that church because our kids like it. Dad, you better step up. Go to a church because it glorifies Christ. Period. They may not have the best programs. They may not have the best ideas. Those things are great. Those things are are cool. They're extra. Are those things pointing people to Christ? That's what you need to ask yourself. Not are they entertaining us while we're on our way to hell indifferent toward Christ. Sorry that the Bible study has turned into a little preaching today to the American church. We must never be deceived into thinking that we are something that we are not. They ought to see in church thought that they were something that they weren't. We're rich. We got everything we need. What, what could Christ even offer us because we're so amazing? They worshiped their own praise and praised their own worship, didn't they? They're self-deceived. Self-deception plagues churches. You know why? Because there are people involved. Not all those people are believers. Not all those people are of the same heart and of the same mind. That's why it's important that we are of the same heart and the same mind, and that is Christ. That is why it's important that we as men of God get on the same page. And what is that page? Christ and Christ alone. We must always find next our true riches in Jesus our Lord. We must always find our true riches in Jesus our Lord. Never settle for worldly riches or worldly things. Many a man has sold his soul to the devil in the name of worldly success under the guise of the American dream. You don't have to amen. The amen knows it's true. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, proven by our good deeds for his glory. You don't know if you're truly clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is going to come out of your life. That's why he says to the Laodicean church, I know your deeds. He knows every one of your deeds. You know how to know if you're truly clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? If righteousness has been imputed in, righteousness is going to come out. No ifs, ands, or buts. If you're in Christ, your life will show it. Lastly, pay attention to this and I'm done. We must repent 
we have fallen into any of these traps. We must repent. It means to turn from these things. Why is this important? Repentance proves that you really belong to Christ, right? Some people say, I have faith, and they have no repentance. That's not true faith. True faith will be marked by true repentance, and true repentance will carry on throughout your Christian life, I assure you. True faith will bring true repentance, proving that you really do belong to Christ. And a failure to repent reveals that you aren't Christ at all. And you, my friend, are in danger of the same lukewarm indifference. You are in danger of being spewed out of the very mouth of God. May we never accept being like the Laodicean church. May we never accept what we have seen this evening. Perhaps today you need to repent. I would encourage you, repent before you lay your head on a pillow tonight. Turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Trust in Him and Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word, even the parts that hurt. Because we know this. That those that You truly love, as You said, You do discipline. Lord, if we are hearing this as Your children, we know this. This is discipline and not judgment. Because we know that Your judgment is going to come upon the unbeliever. Those who do not repent. Those who do, do not seek riches from you. Those who do not seek righteousness from you. Those who do not seek healing from their spiritual blindness from you. Lord, I pray if there be anyone in our midst who's not a believer today, Lord, we ask by your grace that your spirit would draw them out of darkness and into light, that they would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior this very day. As they turn to you and you alone, as they turn from their sin and the wickedness that has plagued them, they turn to Christ, raise them from the dead spiritually this very night. God, I pray for these men who do know you. Lord, in a world of indifference toward you, let us not be of that camp. Let us not be of those people. Let us be exactly what you have commanded us to be in your word. People who live and who die for your glory alone. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the hope that you give us. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. I pray for each man here tonight as they leave here and they represent their homes. May they represent their homes for the glory of God. May they raise their children to know you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's word. If you'd like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.